0: Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. New legislation is making its way through Australian state parliaments, enshrining the concept of affirmative consent, an explicit, articulated, ongoing agreement to sexual activity. Brie Lee, Saxon Mullings and Amy Tunig navigate these recent changes and the implications for sexual freedom. Are changes to the law enough? What should justice look like? And how to get the next generation of people to be different? Hosted by Lucia Osborne Crowley, recorded live at the Sydney Opera House for All About Women 2022.
1: everyone thank you so much for being here what a delight this is to all be together Um, before I introduce everyone on stage today I would also like to personally acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today and to acknowledge that we live and work and write and create art on stolen land the sovereignty of this land was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land So we are here today to talk about consent, which means that we're here today to talk about all the ways that the society in which we live fails those among us whose consent is ignored, overridden, dismissed and violated. So we are gonna be speaking about some difficult topics and I wanna say up upfront, uh, just to let you all know, um, we will be speaking about sexual assault, sexual violence and trauma and the impacts of trauma. Um, and so just to let you all know, there are services available. You can call 1-800-RESPECT or Lifeline if you need help. And I always like to say, at events that I'm doing as well, you know, you can leave the room at any time, take a break, do whatever you need to do. You know, sometimes there's nothing worse than sitting in a seat and feeling overwhelmed and feeling like you don't have the freedom to get up and do what you need to do. So none of us are gonna be offended, get up and leave if you need to. Um, So thank you all for being here. I really, it really is such a joy and a real honor to be sitting on stage with these three women. Um, And I'm going to formally introduce them in a minute and give you a list of all the amazing things that they've done. Uh, But before that, you know, I wanna say also how much of a personal honor it is to be with them because they they have done all of the amazing things I'm just about to say to you, but they are also incredible people and they are generous and dedicated and, they get up. You know, these are people who get up every day uh, and try and make the world safer for other people, and that's that's really hard work. And they do it at great personal cost. Um, and you know, I think it's really important to acknowledge that. And I admire them all so much, and they inspire me a lot. So I just want to thank them. Um, so I'm going to start right next to me here. We have Saxon Mullins. Saxon is the Director of Advocacy at Rape and Sexual Assault Research and Advocacy. In 2018, Saxon appeared on on the Four Corners episode, I Am That Girl, where she gave up her anonymity to tell the story of her 2013 sexual assault and the subsequent criminal trials and appeals. The Four Corners episode led to the New South Wales Attorney General asking the New South Wales Law Reform Commission to review the sexual assault of the New South Wales Crimes Act To review the section of the New South Wales Crimes Act that deals with consent in relation to sexual assault. Saxon was the recipient of the Australian Human Rights Commission's 2018 Young Persons Human Rights Medal. She is passionate about igniting a conversation about enthusiastic consent, not only in relation to how this is dealt with under the law, but also views about consent within society, particularly among young people. I had this idea when I was first reading through these bios of there were all these moments where we could all clap but then there were so many of them <laughs> that I was just like we will be here for an hour if I do that so I'm not going to do that but I was just reminded reading through that of that was my first instinct. Um, we have Amy Tunig. Amy, tu- Amy Tunig is a Gomari academic, education academic and media commentator who recently submitted her doctoral thesis in education studies. Amy's first book which I am so excited about, Mm. Tell Me Again, will be published by UQP in November. It's a collection of personal essays exploring her complex intersectional experiences growing up in a household and community where incarceration, drug addiction and love were all interwoven. And we have Bree Lee. Bree is an award-winning author, academic and activist. Her books include Who Gets to Be Smart, Beauty and Eggshell Skull. She is the columnist for T Magazine Australia, writes regularly for The Saturday Paper and runs a weekly substack called News and Reviews, which you should all subscribe to if you don't already because it's brilliant. Bree's advocacy saw consent laws in Queensland referred to the Law Reform Commission, and she founded the Freedom Inside Initiative, which gets books to women in prisons in New South Wales. She is a PhD candidate and lecturer at the University of Sydney. Now please give them all a round of applause. incredible. So, we are going to talk today about both consent law and how it's changing and how it needs to be changed, and also consent education and how we teach our young people about consent. And you know, the more I write and research um, ideas around consent and sexual violence, the more I realise that... There there are systemic problems built into every single stage of the way we think about consent, the way that we teach it from the very first years of our young people's lives, right the way through to the way we deal with it in the criminal justice system and the way we treat victim-survivors throughout the justice system and afterwards. So, as a brief introduction, my name is Lucia Osborne Crowley. I'm a writer and a journalist. Um, I have written two books about sexual violence and trauma and the long-term impacts uh, of trauma, um, based partly on my own experience of those things. Um, I have a book coming out uh, next year about the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, which I covered in New York um, in December and about all the ways that that trial shows us just um, just how many ways victim survivors are failed again and again and again and again both by our governments and by our legal systems so uh, to kick off the conversation I um, I'm going to—so as I said, we are going to be speaking a lot about laws and about the criminal justice end of things, but I want to start, Amy, with you and your expertise in education um, and the way that we educate people about consent. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your work? and? where you think we're at in this conversation. Yeah sure thank you Lucia and um, yeah what
2: an honour to be on such a panel with such phenomenal people. Uh, So I am an education academic and uh, I work full time at a university in a school of education where I primarily um, support pre-service teachers um, becoming teachers Uh, and so as someone who my background is as a teacher I am so excited about the introduction of the mandatory consent education. I think that you know it's really important maybe, you know, I would assume that most people in this audience would know, but when we're talking about consent, it begins and it extends far beyond sexualized contact. Um, It is about body autonomy. It is about rights and responsibilities. And these are things that are core to a healthy society. And societies measure and they teach that which they value. And so the introduction of formal mandated consent education from kindergarten, so that's like four to five years, through to year 10, Um, although what that exactly will look like is yet to be seen the fact that it's being introduced is actually part of the lesson itself because it sets that tone and it tells our young people that their rights over their own bodies and their responsibilities to respect the way they are engaging with their peers and their friends matters. Mm. And these young people are going to grow up to be the nurses and the officers and the lawyers and the judges of our future. So I'm just so excited that we're setting that intention as a society.
1: And I love the way in your work you do draw attention to the fact that even if, you know, we're talking about consent only when we get to ideas about sexual touch, it's already too late. You know, we've we've already gone past the point where we should be. We should be going even further back back than that. Um, And as you said, you know, this is about all kinds of touching and and bodily autonomy. And is there anything else you wanted to say about that? Yeah, I think that point about it, it— being so far
2: outside, like it is a spectrum, right? The way we engage with each other physically is this huge spectrum. And even through the pandemic, you know, suddenly not automatically hugging people hello or kissing people hello was a really big change to our society. Um, I actually hate strangers touching me. So I really enjoyed that um, because like 30% of every social interaction with me is spent focusing on like, how do I avoid this person I don't know kissing me? (laughs) Um, But I, I think that this matters, right? Like when we engage with people, we don't have a right to know their story. We don't have a right to know if different types of physical touch is uncomfortable for them or a trigger for them or something that they really love. And so learning that we need to pause, just like we have to learn to like have a bit of physical distance because of the pandemic, learning to pause from an early age and say, Hey, are you okay with physical touch? Or I'd really like to hug you. Or, you know, I'd like to kiss you. Can I kiss you? Like these kinds of questions and the practice are just really wonderful tools across the spectrum for how we engage, engage with one another and
1: support one another as a society. Absolutely. And it's such a beautiful point about, you know, we're in this moment now where we've come out of a period where we haven't been able to engage in physical touch. So it's an amazing time to start really consciously practicing asking for consent before you touch and hug and kiss people yeah Um, and you know I'm exactly the same as you I loved having two years where nobody touched me I thought it was (laughs) best and I you know I hate hugging people I, I find it you know very uncomfortable so it was great when that wasn't happening yeah and I think as well because you, you might think oh but I've observed
2: you like I'm very touchy-feely with my friends I'm raised by a family of huggers I'm absolutely big on physical touch but not from people I don't know <laughs> exactly. and so just thinking oh but I've seen you hugging other people yeah but that doesn't mean that that touch is for us or for us
1: yet yes mm. Thank you. And Brie, you have also done a lot of work in schools Mm. around consent education. Mm. That was a good noise. (laughs) Um, Do you want to tell us about
3: that? Mm. Uh, So, obviously, second everything that Amy's just said, um, and, you know, we've seen a lot of coverage lately since the announcement that consent would be mandated consent. Uh, curriculum would be made mandatory um from sort of all ages and a lot of um completely hyperbolic unnecessary hand wringing Mm. because at the kindy age what you're talking about is bodily autonomy and respect for the self and respect for others and that is like things as simple as from my head to my toes I say what goes yes and from like my perspective as a survivor of an instance of child sexual abuse, and then also doing advocacy around adult-to-adult sexual assault, obviously consent not being an issue in the former and very much an issue in the latter from a legal perspective. Um, There are so many similarities and there are some differences. And I just think like a huge part of the problem, socially around, you know, it takes the average survivor of an of any kind of sex crime, like at least two decades, I think, to come forward, usually. Part of the problem with that is because it's not just like sort of part of the language that we learn as we grow up, mm-hmm. um, how to just discuss or even understand for ourselves what our boundaries are and when somebody has crossed them. Um, and it's just—so the reason I sort of frame it that way is because I get brought into schools uh, when it's too late, Mm -hmm. really. I get um, airdropped in at the sort of grade 10, 11, and 12 mark, mostly grade 11 and 12. I think I've done one talk to a grade 9 classroom. And by 10, 11, 12, um, 50% of those young people are already sexually active, and of those, a third of them have had unwanted sexual experiences. And I... Uh, I feel really torn about doing this work. The reason I do it, obviously, is because every young person you can reach is better. Um, And also, uh, I am a relatively polarizing person. Uh, If a school calls and wants me to come in, that's a pretty good sign. Um, because they, <laughs> they know that, um, they can't choose what I say. Uh, yep. they can't choose what I'm going to deliver. I'm going to deliver evidence-based yeah. best practice. Um, and that that involves LGBTQIA content. Um, that involves using the right words for the right body parts. That involves swearing if necessary. Um, which it is, um, <laughs> quite often. And... But I find it really heartbreaking. So last year, for example—and I get brought into the schools that are already caring about this stuff. Mm. Uh, last year, I got invited to give a talk to a cohort of grade 11 and 12 girls. Um, I arrived at the school. I hadn't realized that um, this was actually a coeducational school and they had split the boys and the girls. I was only to talk to the girls about consent and respectful relationships while the boys were being told about mental health and financial planning. <laughs> oh, my God. So, uh, I riled them up. Uh, they didn't take much. <laughs> um, but it was heartbreaking. So much of that work I do is, honestly, it's devastating. Mm. Uh, at the end of that particular talk to the girls, um, I had them, first of all, asking why aren't the boys getting this talk, Mm. and I said, great question. Let's have a chat about that. (laughs) And to that school's credit, they brought me in. They brought me back three days later to talk to the boys. Um, And that's the first and only time so far that I've been asked to talk to either a mixed cohort or to the boys. And the irony there being, of course, that actually girls need advice about financial planning and boys need lessons about consent. Yeah. Um, but the final thing i 'll say about it is that a method I have developed over time that unfortunately gets the best and most important results uh, for the q and A session at the end is that while I'm speaking, they have all had access, all of these young people have, I let them have their phones on them, especially in case they need to, like, sort of take a little break and tap Mm -hmm. out, kind of, like, look at your phones, I'm not offended, it's fine. Um, And they have access to an anonymous Google form. And at any point in my speech, uh, my presentation, they can submit questions and I can see the questions as they come up and they're completely anonymized and then at the end we take a 10-minute break they think for themselves they have a chat with each other they send through any other questions they have and we go through them together and I tell you what those questions are fucking heartbreaking Mm. the things that they still have questions about are 101 basics of things that people should not be doing to each other um and it's just such a band-aid I get flown Mm. in at the end of their schooling as an absolute band-aid.
1: Yeah and as you say you know by that age it is far too late to have the kind of intervention that these kind of educational strategies are supposed to have and we know about um, child sexual abuse in particular that you know there's so much about it which is about incremental boundary crossing and if you're not taught about boundaries as a as a child you know as a four and five-year-old then it's very hard to be clear about those boundaries when someone's determined to come along and and push them. Mm. Um, And do you think there is any more of an appetite in schools now to have you come in and speak to younger people? Well hopefully with these new changes
3: their appetite for me is irrelevant. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes. I do have I I want to be optimistic, uh, but I do have reservations. so my um, friend and the expert I usually defer to in this area is a woman called Katrina Marzen. She's a um, lawyer, but all, yeah, whoever <laughs> just clapped, yeah. Um, and she's a Returned Churchill Fellow. She's been all around the world looking, Not she doesn't endorse any particular consent and relationships and sexuality education program. She looks at how other countries around the world have best implemented those programs, mm-hmm. whatever they are. Um, and she's been saying from the very beginning, um, Getting it in the curriculum is one thing, and that's an obviously a an completely necessary first step, but where every other country has faltered and either come through good or just still is not working is with implementation. Mm. Um, and so, yes, this first step is great, but one of the worst things we could do is think that that has mm. solved the problem. Because I also know from the schools I go to, one of the reasons I get parachuted in is because the parents are... It's like such a nightmare to navigate with the parent group, parent and carer interest groups. Like, what are you teaching my child? Mm, Yeah. There are just, it just, you, it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to do this, great. And then looking at what that actually means for individual schools and educators and specialists, organizations who actually have expertise in delivering this stuff, getting the fund, like, It's complex, this is a great first step, um, but it is a first step of many.
2: Yeah, there are like issues around generational education. So one of the things we see within schools where they make this argument around sex education that it should come from the parents, but we've had generations who don't know anything about sexual education themselves. We can't rely on it being taught at home. And something that the more I've talked about consent education and particularly the concept of enthusiastic consent is, I've been surprised by how many adults my own age and older have quietly said to me, but doesn't getting like overt consent kill the mood? And these are, these are people who are scared because they don't know what it looks like. What's the script? Is it like, am I just supposed to say to the person I'd like to kiss you, for example? And so we're bringing in this brand new concept that for some families and some communities has never been practiced. And I couldn't name a romantic comedy or a song or anything in our pop culture, like history over the last few generations that I could point to and say, that is some good modeling that I could say yep friend go and look at that and then work you know practice the script because we're talking about personal implementation too Mm. so Mm. it's scary It's not like we have the resistance and we have the people who, for obvious reasons, do not want children and women and gender-diverse people particularly being taught consent. But we also have the gritty side of it where people don't know what this looks like Mm. because it's not common in our society. That's why it's had to become mandatory. And so I agree with everything that Bree said and the fact that it's going... Implementation's going to be messy Mm. because the teachers and many of the families aren't going to be able to immediately know what that should
3: look like and it's gonna make people uncomfortable. Also this is like highly specialized information. Yeah. It is so unfair if part of this implementation process just looks like expecting teachers who are already overworked, under resourced, yes. underappreciated to just yes. add that to their list of things to do. That is not fair on them and it's not fair on the students.
0: Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Um, Brie and I spoke last night about how, you know, in this conversation we were going to get into the real issues and it's so nice to have, you know, people up here who are able to do that and really kind of talk us through what change actually looks like and how complex that is. Um, Saxon, I would love to talk to you um, about the landmark changes we've just seen in New South Wales consent law. Um, Thanks in no small part to you and your campaign and your work. So this is a hugely significant change in the way our legal system thinks about consent and and the way that the courts will treat consent and the way that juries will be instructed to treat consent from now on. So uh, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about what those changes are?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So um, we've adopted in New South Wales a similar um, uh, legal system to uh, Tasmania. So it just means that um, if you want to rely on the mistake of fact defense, so to say that you were unaware that somebody wasn't consenting, um, you have to show that you took steps to ascertain whether they were consenting. So you can't have absolutely no evidence um, and just say, oh, well, I just assumed they were, um, which previously in New South Wales was the go. Uh, You can't do that anymore. So um, moving towards that space of Checking in with your partner, the idea of affirmative consent, like having those awkward conversations Mm. um, and I think you know, it's it's such an important step that New South Wales has taken. But when you look at the whole idea of sexual violence of consent, it's such a small aspect of it, because how many people actually go to the police? How many people actually feel comfortable going to the police? How many cases get to trial? You know, it's it's so important. But if we don't do anything else around that, like the education aspect, then we may as well not have done it at all. Um, and I think one of the main things that's so important about the legal changes is it's sort of, um, you know, having it in law, written down, sort of trickles down into the the rest of society. And unlike trickle-down economics, it actually works. Mm. People <laughs> talk about it. You know, we're actually continuing to have these conversations. And you know, however many years ago when, you know, people were still talking about it on the on the DL, here we are actually out in the open saying, this is what needs to happen. Yeah.
1: And that's such a powerful thing about, you know, working this hard and and making a legislative change, because it does force people to really think about things
4: they might not want to think about and, and have the conversation about what that looks like. Absolutely. And I think it also, with the consent education becoming mandatory gets over those conversations of parents saying, well, oh, what are you teaching my children? It just has to be done. You don't say, what are you teaching my children about maths? Maths. Yeah. What are you teaching about consent? Consent. Yeah. Like, I'm actually doing the work that I have to do, and it's the same with the law. It has to be done this way. Yeah, absolutely. And
1: uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what that campaign was like and what it's been like getting to this
4: point? Well, I think um, there was— both more and less advocacy than I, you know, sort of imagine that there would be. In that, um, you know, this this campaign, this this movement started long, long before I came on the scene. You know, how many advocates and feminists have been calling for this for for so many years? So I think like having that that base level of people calling for this for so long w- was so important. Um, but I told my story with with four corners of my own assault, um, and I think one of the reasons that it sort of resonated with a lot of people is that I I kind of have the privilege of having a perfect victim status. Um, You know, when you look at my story, it had all of the things that you would think, well, you know, that's as clear-cut as as a case can get. in the in the eyes of you know uh, societal views, which was that I was young, I was a virgin. It was you know I I, I was not a you know big person to go out or to go out drinking. Um, you know I didn't have anything that anyone could fall back on and say oh well you were this so obviously that happened. And the system still didn't work. Um, and so I think it's only because of my many privileges that my story was you know sort of lifted up at all. Um, and then. Uh, once our our Four Corners episode came to air, uh, the New South Wales Attorney-General announced that they would recommend those laws to the Law Reform Commission. Um, The New South Wales Law Reform Commission was fine. Um, (laughs) Fine. If anyone's here, you're all very nice people, but um, they, in the end, didn't actually recommend affirmative consent. They didn't recommend changing the laws into into what we have today, um, which, was such a shame and just felt like such a waste of so many years of work and advocacy. Um, but thankfully, uh, the New South Wales Attorney-General, Mark Speakman, was, um, was actually open to listening to academics and to survivors and, to, you know, uh, I think he did very well at sort of centering survivor voices and, and just saying, you know, this is what I'm hearing needs to be done, so it's what we're going to do, and they, and they ended up going that step further.
1: Yeah, wow. And I think, you know, people are so afraid of big structural change and will do anything to make excuses to not do it. Um, And, you know, it's amazing that it, you know, it has been done. It has gotten over the line. Uh, Bree, you've had experiences with this in Queensland Mm. um, and your campaigns to change the laws in Queensland. Do you want to tell us about that? Mm. Um, (laughs) So...
3: When my first book, Eggshell Skull, came out in 2018, um, it gave me a public profile, um, and I wanted to do something with that public profile. And one of the issues I had encountered, uh, in this is a so criminal law is legislated by state and territory, so Queensland is different from New South Wales. Um, one of the issues I had encountered was this mistake of fact excuse, um, and I had seen it in courtrooms plenty of times, uh, and it was just leading to disastrous results, um, where just defendants um, would get away with just the most heinous stuff, um, because they could say that they had an honest and reasonable belief that the complainant was consenting in what I consider to be a complete absence of evidence um, for that. And so, um, as Saxon mentioned, like, both she and I came onto the scene in similar times and was, and very much built on pre-existing work. And so, for me, in Queensland, that meant connecting with the Women's Legal Service Queensland, who had been running a campaign to update the mistake of fact excuse and the way it works in rape and sexual assault matters for years. I connected with my um, former law professor, Jonathan Crowe, we co-authored research about how the way the mistake of fact excuse works in Queensland basically further screws over already disadvantaged people. So um, in particular women with—like dis- people with disabilities, women with disabilities, women for whom English is their second language or who—where um, there is a language gap between the. Um, Complainant and defendant. Situations where, once you've seen this stuff a bit, you realize like these women are targeted mm. because of these disadvantages, yeah. and then they enter a system in which they are further disadvantaged because of those factors. So, we campaigned um, to get basically consent law in Queensland referred to the Law Reform Commission. Um, I found that to be an excruciating and brutal process um, that really completely cooked me. Um, I was interrogating a system, and what I got in response was personal evisceration. Um, it's no more, like, especially from the legal profession, who, you know, we now know we have all this evidence that actually sexual harassment is higher in the legal profession than it is in the general Australian population. The irony of, like, the kinds of people who are fighting for the status quo in Mm -hmm. law being, the worst people, <laughs> um, and they're supposed to adjudicate this stuff. So we were up against the, for example, the Bar Association and the Law Society in Queensland who was saying, like, who are these, like, young idiots who want to change a perfectly good law that's been good law for 120 years? And it's like, are we even having the same fucking conversation? No. If you have a law that is at all about gender and power dynamics, the longer it's been the same for the, <laughs> the worse, worse it, it is. probably <laughs> is. Like, not even... Anyway, but that's precedent, that's the law, that is like respect for what has come before. Um, it's, that is just such a mindset in that industry. So we got, uh, we finally got the referral, we won uh, after a letter writing, after whatever, everything for ages. Um, and then the Queensland Law Reform Commission took, I think, nine months. We had these roundtables where survivors bled for them, um, and where we had these roundtables where every single person present, and we counted the votes. These were organizations representing survivors, organizations with all kinds of expertise and experience in the sector and survivors themselves, unanimous vote for the legislation that we had drafted. and. The word roundtable appears once in the Law Reform Commission's final report and it's to mention that it happened. So they ask you to bleed for them and then they don't even, they very much, nothing happened there. That was apparently a complete waste of an exercise. The entire expertise of the sector, all of these organisations in the sector, like 20-something organisations, irrelevant because they're not lawyers. Um, and the law reform commission came back and said, uh, these laws are fine and Queensland and Western Australia have the worst consent laws in the entire country. Mm. Uh, and so now there's a new labor government, um, and there's a new attorney general and she's set up a 10 person task force. They've just returned their recommendations to legislate around coercive control, and the second path of the task force is now happening, which is more broadly about women's experiences with the criminal justice system. And as part of that, they will again be considering the matter of consent and the mistake of fact excuse. And in the meantime, Mark Speakman in New South Wales has actually legislated for affirmative consent in New South Wales. So all we can hope is that Queensland will take this opportunity
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: and fix their massive fuck up from before.
1: Yeah. Before I ask my next question, I'm going to tell you all about Slido, which is how we ask questions of the panel. Um, so. Slido is a technology that I'm really hoping I will successfully be able to use uh, in this situation. I have a lot of doubts about it and all the lovely Sydney Opera House staff had to deal with me being like, we need to talk about Slido again, It's like (laughs) 20 times already today. Um, But so I'm told, so the instructions up here, you can go on www.sly.do. And put in the <laughs> hashtag. Do advertorial. Yeah, You're yeah. Nailing I this work story. for Slido now. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you can put in the hashtag after consent, and you can ask a question, and then it will come through to me. Um, God help you on this iPad, <laughs> uh, and and I'm told all I have to do is be able to read, which I can do, um, and I just have to turn on the iPad, and your questions will be there. We're not going to questions just yet, but it's always nice to have some time to you know percolate. Uh, so think about your questions, <laughs> go on the internet, <laughs> send your questions to m- me on my iPad, um, and I'll ask <laughs> the panel. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, we had a discussion. If the thing doesn't work, um, Bree's going to do a guinea pig impression. Oh my yeah. Not really. It's really good. It's really good. It's,
2: <laughs> it's worth watching. Yeah. I, I recommend you don't submit questions so we can... Yeah. Well.
4: we'll start a campaign. Oh, no, it's not working. Oh, no. oh, oh. <laughs> we'll have to do the guinea pig Slide It's slide.don't.
1: not Oh, that's very good. I'm not, I'm not... I've just been fired from my job as um, doing PR for Slide <laughs> Um, anyway, please ask some questions. Please. Oh. <laughs> For the sake of Bree, who I've just now roped into a guinea pig impression. Um, Saxon, I'd love to go back to what you said and, you know, what we've all been talking about, about this idea of the perfect victim and what that looks like, especially in current conversations we're having in Australia. Um, And the idea of certain survivors um, who are listened to and certain survivors who are not. Um, And the idea that as a society, we are much more willing to absorb the story of a survivor who looks and speaks a certain way. Um, And, you know, this is a really important thing for us to reckon with and for us to acknowledge um, that— these stories, all of our stories need to be listened to and all of our stories need to be raised up. So I'd love to ask you all about this and how you think we can push this movement forward and make sure that, that, you know, we are not accepting society's idea of a perfect victim. Whoever wants
4: to go. Mm -hmm. Um, you said (laughs) Saxon. Sorry. It's in the cards. That's fine. Um, Yeah, I think absolutely that—that is about 90 percent of the reason why my story was—was elevated in the way that it was, not only in relation to the things I mentioned before. So, you know, having no previous sexual history makes it very easy to, you know, cut this perfect victim out, but also, you know, we don't— we find sexual violence so difficult to talk about that we we refuse to talk about it in with in addition to any kind of other intersectionality at all, so mm. that is race that is sexuality that is any of those things we We will not do it, um, and so you know my perfect victim status allowed me to come forward with my story, but me being able to come forward with my story means that 20 other people cannot come forward with theirs because they don't look a certain way, they don't act a certain way, they don't love the people that we love. Um, And so, you know, it's—it's— so, so important to not only be able to listen to those voices, but when we talk about sort of ending this this crisis in Australia that we have of sexual violence, that is not in isolation. We can't end it without racism without tackling, um, you know, homophobic behaviour, without tackling all of those things because they all are interconnected. So when we view the perfect victim narrative, we know exactly why that is because we refuse to talk about it in any other way. Um, and, and we just can't do it in isolation. Absolutely.
1: And, um, you know, it's such an important thing and it's such an important point for us not to be stuck in this place where some of us are now comfortable speaking about sexual violence in a certain kind of way, um, and, and to be able to move that forward and to be able to talk about all of those different intersections. Mm. Um, and do we think, you know, that that's a matter of, of trying to move the conversation forward? Are there any other practical ways we can do this? Is it kind of, what do we think is, what comes next? Well, I
3: can give a specific example that we're up against in Queensland at the moment with this task force. So obviously we're talking about sexual violence here, but in, in a context of basically, do you believe this person is mm. like one of the fundamental mm-hmm. ongoing barriers. Um, and that is the same story if you're talking about like domestic and family abuse as it is with child sexual abuse or adult sexual assault. That's these this sort of gendered powered dynamic crimes. And in the first half of the 10-person task force happening in Queensland, they've just um, presented their report from that basically inquiry into whether or not they should legislate against coercive control. And the report has come back with, you know, 100-and-something recommendations, the usual amount. A huge number of those relate specifically to the police making things worse. and. I have come, not full circle, but a long way in my attitude towards basically the carceral response to gendered and power crimes um, Mm. and whether or not you can sort of trust the cops and whether or not legislating things is always the best response. And what is very, I think, illuminating in Queensland is that about 20 of the recommendations related to the Queensland Police Service one of the main ones being that there needed to be a review into what cadets are being taught and then what cops are actually doing when they respond to calls about um, these private and so gendered crimes. Uh, And the current Queensland Police Commissioner has said that that's not necessary and she can't support that recommendation.
2: That will be the same commissioner though when recently it was found that there were numerous Queensland police officers posting not only racist vitriol, um, but also details of domestic violence survivors, like where they lived, in a Facebook chat. Um, their response to that was, now the officers aren't allowed on social media. Um, so, I mean, I, I could wax lyrical about fuck the police. Um, <laughs> but do it, do it, do wasn't- it. But I think there's there's a couple of things. <laughs> the but isn't the place that stands on its own. Um, but the, I think there's a few things to consider. So firstly when we're talking about the violence of the system so like what Brie was saying about that that cost that people having to bleed for them and then it being reduced to a line and dismissed because all of the people the masses the communities the individuals they weren't actually the people with the power and we see this time and time again whether it's you know racism and violence in the health system or you know gendered violence and you know uh, and when I say gendered violence, I, I really emphasise as well the way gender, di- gender diverse people are treated within the healthcare system. Um, when we look at people experiencing homelessness, when we look at the many, many violences, these are—it's colonialism in action. These systems were brought here, and there hasn't been a reset button. And so the systems are tradition in practice and it's a very specific, very niche practice and it heteropatriarchal, hetero-patriarchal and so it doesn't just exclude indigenous peoples or trans peoples or gender diverse peoples or women in general, it erases us and it says this is the way, this is the shape and everyone who sits outside of this doesn't count. And then in terms of the violence of the police system and the carceral system when we're talking about domestic violence and sexual assault, um, I personally assume that every woman that I talk to has been sexually assaulted I just have that assumption unless I've told otherwise I don't I don't start from the other position I just assume Um, and I I've just written a book about my own trauma and um it really wasn't until I wrote it that I I put two and two together like oh yeah the the one of many experiences of sexual assault that I write in the book he was a cop like I hadn't actually ever put that together until I was writing up why I didn't even bother going to the police station um he was a former cop by the time he sexually assaulted me but uh I had seen the way he still enforced his power um you know when he was pulled over drink driving and things like that like the ways in which police officers support each other. And it's not just police officers, we see it in these systems where it's the old guard and the gatekeeping of legal institutions in health institutions. And we are up against tradition, not best practice. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is so important to remind ourselves, like when we hear, When we read, when we see in the media, the hyperbolic responses, the what ifs, the, oh, we'll need an app and you'll have to sign a stat deck before we can fuck, you know, and it's like... It's a tiny little number. We have one of the most concentrated media ownerships in the world. And we have these set systems that are just cycling violence and it's not best practice and it doesn't serve the bulk of us. And so when we talk about these changes and we have these complex conversations, usually um, it'll be representatives, oh, it's just to support survivors and they're a niche group. Firstly, it's not a niche group. Um, But secondly, when we support the oppressed of our societies, when we support the marginalised of our societies. When we remember that this is stolen, unceded lands and actually we have over 60,000 years of beautiful, healthy, often matriarchal communities here on these lands, that we can lean into a different tradition, we can lean into best practice, we can work for that change and we'll be serving the masses, we'll be serving our communities as well as the individuals. And that can be hard to lose sight of because of the propaganda and because of the violence we experience when you are working or just watching like okay we talk about you being the perfect victim but as someone who's experienced sexual assault I remember the reporting of your story and I felt empowered by it because I didn't feel I could talk at the time but you were talking mm. I can emotional <laughs> but you know and and so while it's not fair that white able-bodied women get the microphone it's better than no one having it, you know? And the fact that the women who then do get the microphone are doing their best to make sure that they are on panels where they are with disabled Aboriginal people as well and that we are sharing that platform makes a difference. But I was grateful that you shared your story and that mattered to me as an Aboriginal person, as a disabled person. And so I'm just glad these conversations are happening and I know that together we're going to keep making space for intersectional voices.
1: And I extend that same gratitude to all three of you for sharing your stories, um, knowing uh, that it does come at a personal cost and that it's so hard to do this work. Um, And every time we share our stories, I think we create more space for others. um, And that's really, really important. And so um, everything that Amy just said to you, I just want to say to all of you. Um, and I really wanted to actually touch on that issue of, you know, this idea of the role that personal stories play um, in in wedging open structural change. Um, but the big clock is telling me that I should go to <laughs> questions because I'm already running late. Um, and there are lots of great questions in here. Um, so. And I've accidentally closed the tab. It's okay. I've got it. it, Fine. I to have to get up, Brie. Find the tab. Find the tab. Uh So I don't want to run out of time for your questions because these are very lovely, thoughtful questions. And the first one I'm going to ask because I think it builds on so beautifully from everything you just said, Amy, um, is how can young people who, who really want to get involved in this movement what what should young people be doing to kind of push this forward? And anybody can answer It's a question to all three of you.
3: Just the first thing is that I get emails all the time from people who want to know what they can do and want to set up their own organizations and start their own initiatives. People have been doing this work for decades. Go and lend a hand. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's just if you really have that drive, then that is awesome and organizations in this sector are so like running on the smell of an oily rag and always will absolutely appreciate and love an extra pair of hands. Um, The first port of call I always recommend is whatever your local women's legal service is because whether or not you volunteer for them or they put you in touch with a different organization where you can start helping, um, swallow the urge to strike out on your own until... You've been doing it for a few years and know um, what you're doing um, because, yeah, the, the, the people fighting for change are already fighting for it and they would absolutely love to have you.
2: Yep. Yeah, yeah I would agree with that, um, forgive me, I won't quote it perfectly, um, but Lilla Watson says if you've come here to help me you're wasting your time but if you've come here because your liberation is bound up in mine then let us work together. And I think that sometimes we get a bit excited m- because we see people looking very shiny and you just see it when you're on television and on panels you get to see people at their best but um, what isn't seen is the very very hard work and the tiring and the death threats um, mm-hmm. that come with that uh, and turning up to you know in Victoria there's JIRA um, Ashley Donahue runs a fantastic Indigenous women's space in Redfern I can't remember do you know the name um pardon I can't the- that. Um, I thought probably, uh, there are existing services who already have people who are older in that they have accessed the readings they have been part of the communities they are already connected and um, I wrote an article with some friends a couple of years ago when people say what's the best way to help around invasion day I say come and cut like we say come and cut up carrots like actually we want to put on a feed for afterwards like come and make yourself useful it's not going to be the panel it's not going to be the pretty shiny spot yet, Um, but we need people peeling potatoes, we need people helping serve the elders, Uh, and it's the same in this space, right? Find the established, intersectional, women's legal, trans, gender diverse, you know, supportive community spaces, um, and see if they need someone to help with the cleaning. Um, If you are resourced, see if, you know, maybe you can make a monthly donation, Um, but, but turn up to support the people who have already been doing the work for a while because there's a lot of people who've been doing it for a long time.
1: Thank you both. And that all those people who've been doing it for such a long time, you know, have such a lot to teach and give and, you know, that's where you learn all the things, you know, that are so, so important in these spaces. So thank you for those answers. Another great question, which we could have a whole panel about, um, but I will ask it because I think it's really important to this conversation, um, is about this idea of coercive control and how we should be incorporating ideas of coercive control into these legislative reforms or the way way that we educate our kids. Um, Does anyone have any thoughts about that? I uh, personally think that the
3: most valuable thing from the conversation that has been happening about coercive control is how transformative it could be in the educational environment. I'm not yet... uh, I don't know enough, and I'm not yet convinced on any point to make an argument for or against legislating it. And I've I've already stated my reservations about Queensland Police Service in particular, um, because that's the jurisdiction that I'm most familiar with. Um, But what It could be hugely transformative for young people, even from that age of, like, head to my toes, I say what goes, understanding unhealthy relationships, being able to identify if they may be living in a home Mm. in which Mm. their parents or carers' relationships are unhealthy. Mm. Like, the—I—it's frustrating to see the um, conversation about coercive control only happen— in a like legal framework. I actually think the most value it might offer us is in an educational framework.
2: I fully agree with what Bruce said. I have the same hesitations. I hear the same hesitations from my communities. Um, But I think, you know, the value of that kind of an education in a school setting can be transformative because we are going to go out into the world and repeat what we know. Um, And so even when you want to do better and best, first you often have to unlearn what you've seen. And if you don't know that there's something wrong with it, Um, you're not not necessarily going to be the best person to be partnered with. So things like learning about the abuse cycle, learning about what does healthy communication look like and what might it feel like, um, I think would be
3: very valuable. And also, just sorry, just quickly, um, something Katrina Marzin talks about is that you cannot separate consent from relationships and sexuality education. Yeah. And, of mm. course, an understanding of coercive control is a part of that. And there is, like... I think this nation is still very scarred by the blowback from safe schools Mm. and that there's a reticence to talk about relationships and sexuality education, which is what actually works, and that there is this feeling that you can sort of pull the trigger on consent education and that that will solve the problem. You cannot, like, separate these things from each other. Consent does not—you cannot understand consent unless you understand relationships and power
1: dynamics Mm. and sexuality. Thank you, um, and another one of these questions, um, which is kind of linked to, to what we were saying before, um, is about, you know, the idea of the personal toll and the idea of, of telling personal stories in order to try and open up structural change. Um, and the question is about, you know, how do you all deal with that and stay motivated? You know, what are the things that, that keep you hopeful?
2: how do we deal with it or what keeps us hopeful because I don't have a particularly healthy answer (laughs) (laughs) um live music and drinking no um I am made hopeful by the fantastic schools and children that I get to meet. Um, I have two children, my eldest child is non-binary and their school respects their pronouns and their friends are amazing. And when we confirm their gender identity and we let all their friends' families know, their friends' parents went and bought books and they talked about gender diversity and um, they were just so willing. And the more Gen Zs that I talk to, the more I'm just like, we're gonna be okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's just so much energy and people willing to self-educate and, you know, um, it's beautiful. Like, it's,
3: that that's what gives me hope. It's not how I deal, but it's what gives
0: me hope.
3: (laughs) Uh, I just want to shout out Saxon, because I raced across town when I found out that the Attorney General's department would be making the announcement about affirmative consent legislation. I'm going to cry if I look at you. Um, And I just remember standing at the back of the press pack. Watching Saxon at the podium um, talk about those changes and just like crying and crying, just feeling like, holy fuck, she did it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and celebrating the wins. It can be done. Sometimes it takes a lot longer than you think it might but it is possible
4: yeah yeah, I think that's mine as well, celebrating the wins. Um, I, you know, feel it necessary to bring up that, you know, a, a legal change is such a small aspect of it and, and all of those things, but uh, celebrating the wins, because they are few and they are far between, um, and I think celebrating the community that comes from, from being a, a public survivor, you know, knowing amazing people, I think that absolutely is, is crucial. Um, it often feels like you stand up alone, but that's, that is never the case.
1: Well thank you. So we're going to have to wrap up um, because the big clock timer is telling me that I'm about to go into the red, means <laughs> that we have to get off stage. Um, I'm really so grateful to all of you, there are so many things I think that came up in this discussion that we can all go away with. One of them, Amy, as you said, we are up against tradition, not best practice. Mm, Love that. Putting that in my pocket. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um, That's really important. Um, And also, holy fuck, she did it, is another one that's really (laughs) important. Um, And that, you know, we're all doing it and it is possible, as Bree just said. you know, I'm really in awe of all of you. Thank you for being so generous and such wonderful people. Um, and please join me in thanking them. And thank you,
3: Lucia.
0: Watch this talk and others at All About Women 2022 on stream. The new streaming service from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching. Follow the Sydney Opera House on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.